Welcome to Process, my name's Stephen Walsh. On this week's show, I'll be talking to Owen Pomery. Hello, Owen. Hello. So, and let's start at the beginning. Did you read comics as a kid? I didn't think so, but looking back, um, I did actually read a few. I think it, mainly because what I thought comics was uh, changed. I read like, a huge amount of uh, Tintin and Vino and stuff like that. But the sort of general sort of assumption that people have about comics being superheroes and stuff, I never really strayed into that at all, so I never thought I was into comics. Tintin was in the library, so it felt like a book, and, you know, the Beano was just sort of on the shelves. And Yeah, that, that, that was kind of it. That was kind of the beginning, I suppose. So no genre stuff? No 2000 AD? Absolutely not, no. No, no it was just that. I read... Was it about you were aware of it? When you went into the newsagent and you picked up... Well, I'm assuming that's where you got your, your Beano and your Dandy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did you see any other comics? No, I mean, I grew up in quite a sort of rural community, so there wasn't a huge amount of stuff uh, available. Um, there just wasn't the readership to sort of like support it. So, you know, your, your news agents were doing really sort of standard sort of titles. I also read. Do you remember the Funday Times? Was I do. It, that was in the, the Sunday Times. Times. Yeah. Which, looking back, seems ridiculous now that that existed as a thing, like a free. Like total comics newspaper that was given away on a Sunday, and yet in America, there's a huge tradition of that. The yeah. comic section of yeah, newspapers, yeah. that which was what the Funday Times was, was trying to uh, yeah. ape. So when did you start reading comics? When would you say you first sort of got into them? Quite, well, it, on a, with any kind of intent, I would say quite recently. Um, I came across a few things in between. It wasn't like I was completely unaware of like the more mainstream comics. It wasn't like Who's this Spider-Man? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't, um, and uh, well, I read a few things in between, just just sort of sounding things out. I was sort of, I, I, I suppose, in my sort of teens. I did read Watchmen and some other sort of seminal bits, but I wouldn't say I was into comics. But I wasn't like against them either, if you know, if that makes sense. I was just sort of uh, just never gripped you in a way. That... Yeah, yeah. I only really got into them when I started creating them which uh, as I say is relatively recently. Was there anything from your read as a kid? Is there anything that stuck with you and resonates through to today? Absolutely uh, especially I mean Tintin was a massive part of well actually if we're going back to it that is when I started creating comics because as a kid I used to create my own Tintin stories so right. I'd just sort of hate the characters. And Do you remember any of your titles of alternative Tintin stories? They were quite basic, so generally just a sort of description of what you're going to get. Like Tintin. <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah. So it would be Tintin goes to wherever the, the next thing was happening. So, Do you remember any of your locations? Yeah, I mean, there were, I mean, a lot of them were, were, were treading old ground. Yeah, I did one when we went to space. Tintin, and, back uh, in Tibet. Yeah, you know, a sort of mountain-based one, jungles. That's what I liked so much about Tintin, was he took, went to all these different places over the world. So... Yeah, I was just doing that, really, putting them in. They were more bizarre, they were quite surreal when I look back at them, because it was a child's mind, and you can just sort of jump around and stuff. Any the, particular odd moments that leap out? There was one when it was in, it was set in, in space, and, and it just kind of went, uh, like, like deeply surreal, and it was going to turn into a sort of... Well, it sort of reminds me of, like, Event Horizon or something. It's like this sort of dark, sort of horror, sort of space opera type thing. I don't, I don't know how it ended up down that road, and it's just... It, it's like a kid's vision of what it might turn out to be like. 
Yeah. What age are you producing these dark space operas? Quite young, quite young. I did it for a large period. I didn't have a TV growing up, so this was our, one of our big forms of entertainment, which was just sort of drawing stuff. So me and my brother used to produce them. We did them for a long, long period of time. But the space one was a, a, an earlier one. And would you collaborate, or was it set? You, you're both doing your own volumes. Always did separate ones, but just sort of doing them at the same time. And yeah, trying to try each other's toes. And what sort of materials are you using? Is it your pencils, pens, crayons? Uh, felt tips right. in the early days. So it's uh, colour. Yeah, full colour, and yeah, and it sort of developed over the time we did it. It's kind of weird now, because I've read a lot about Tintin since, and it gets sort of criticised for not having any strong female characters and stuff like that. But I remember putting in female characters, not for that reason, just because I sort of thought it would be in the interest of balance, not that I was a sort of particularly sort of... Uh, um, You're an early feminist, you, uh, well, exactly. but you didn't realise it, it just <laughs> came naturally. It just came naturally, yeah. yeah. Do any of them still exist? The, the actual copies? Yeah. I believe they do in a file back at my parents' place, but I've not seen it for a while. So you say you didn't come to comics through reading them as a child and sticking with them. It was more of a sort of recent discovery. What is your artistic background then? I've always drawn stuff constantly. And then when I went to university, I studied architecture. There's a bit of drawing involved in that as well. I drew outside that a a lot, but um, I was one of the few people who did everything by hand even and then I was still making up stuff and drawing stuff on, on, on the side and are doing things for friends gig posters and uh, not really I didn't really have any sort of particular faith in myself that it was any good it was more for like personal amusement I used to draw short comics in lectures to sort of keep me awake and focused and would and the strips be based on the lecture would it be a sort of form of Absolutely not. Uh, no, no exactly. it would be a complete, sort of, complete departure. I used to do like sort of uh, gangster comics and things, things like that. Yeah, and it sort of came into my architectural work as well. There's quite clearly a sort of comic element to it in, in like the presentational style. And I don't quite know where this was coming from. Because, like I say, I wasn't reading comics. I was just enjoyed drawing them and the way it sort of worked, the storytelling and stuff. So it's what design process is like a storytelling process. So it's sort of worked with it although I didn't really see it at the time it felt completely different your work does have a sort of fresh look to it that I think comes from the fact that you're not beholden to growing up with comics and being surrounded by and immersed in them but instead you're coming from another angle bringing in elements of that discipline and melding the two together to create something that is fresh I think that's exactly right really and and the, the more time I've spent in comics the more parallels I've seen with my architectural work. When I started moving into comics, it came through the fact that I'd sort of moved into sort of illustration more, and I sort of turned my back on architecture quite quickly because I thought it was almost sort of prohibitive to sort of making comics because I didn't have an illustration, like an, uh, an official illustration background, and I saw it as a negative, and I tried to sort of distance myself from it quite, quite early on. But actually, the more I look back at it, it was it. It's one of the, the few things out there that sort of really benefits my sort of work because it's it's a background that a, a lot of other people don't have, and you sort of see that it influences your decisions in a different in a different way, really. Yeah, you've got a very distinctive line style and approach to design on the page. I think that comes through from having a different idea about approaching how a page is going to look. Aesthetically, it does, but also in the actual. Like design of a, a story, if that makes sense. 
So in the way that I design a space in, in architecture, I imagine what narratives or stories play out in that space because you're trying to create a, a stage that works for all those different stories that are going to operate in it. And then in terms of when I create a, a comic or, or narrative-based thing, I always, unusually, I found when talking to other people, I start with a space and then populate that with a story. So you think of a scenario which is odd or interesting, like a, an actual physical thing, and then you work out who would be in that and why they'd be there, and then you step out again, like well, what's driven them to go there, and you step out again of who, who they associate with, etc. So it's, I realise retrospectively it's an odd way of creating a story to sort of start with a stage and then populate it. But, and that comes directly, I think, from studying architecture and design because it hasn't come from a particularly illustrative or a, a, a writing background, I suppose. Yeah, I think a writing background, you'd go with characters first. And if your background, exactly. people would do sketches of the characters and then work out what their traits are and then decide where to put them. But you've established a background and then you're populating it with the people that... Yeah, would yeah. To you. which feels very natural. And like I say, it's only through talking to people relatively recently, that it's uh, been revealed as quite an odd way to go about it. And that seems like a good way to bring us on to Between the Billboards, which is the work of sort of major name in comics. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a prime example of of that process, really. For those who aren't aware, it's about a central character who lives between two advertising billboards in the centre of, of a city. And it was the idea of that space, just sort of, uh, as an idea, like, could you physically inhabit it? And if you could, why would you want to inhabit it? Who would be the person who would want to be exist in that space? And why would they have gone there? And, and what are the reasons for that? And has it always been the case? And where does that lead you? And and the story builds out from, from that. But it was an, an initial idea of just sort of like, of, of a space and, and just drawing that space. And then the story comes from that. And obviously with that setting, the cityscape itself becomes very important, which again taps into your yeah. background in architectural drawing. Exactly, it almost feeds back into it the other way. Um, there's pretty much buildings in every frame of, of, of billboards. Is that a deliberate choice to sort of give yourself an element of comfort to the work because it's an unfamiliar medium you're working in? It wasn't deliberate, but I think maybe subconsciously it was. I feel I much prefer drawing sort of people and characters and stuff, but I think... Um, I enjoy the rules that are associated with drawing buildings and obviously I was far more familiar with it so it was it was kind of natural to put that in the background and it was obviously intrinsic to the to the story as well and I it yeah it, it it's pretty much in in it, in, it, in every page and and it it's part of the whole sort of immersive feeling of the characters sort of sort of drowning in in the city really yeah you were featured in an article in The Guardian recently that talks about the relationship between comics and cities and how it seems a natural relationship between the two. You're known for use of, of vertical lines, which also suits that page as a shape in terms of the rectangle, as does the shape of a city. It's something that Frank Miller talks about when uh, discussing his work, how he deliberately used the rectangular shape, the verticality of the page, to portray cities and when he did 300 he decided to do it horizontally because he's showing a plains people rather than a people in an urban space do you think that could be something that drew you to comics the fact that it's such a strong medium for using cities as a background um i don't think i came to it to 
particularly tell a story about a city and it seemed like the appropriate medium to do so. But there's but there's probably no doubt that I feel sort of comfortable in in the in the city and, and and creating images of it and that the whole sort of setup of the page in billboards is designed to create that sort of cramped vertical feel. It's pretty much set up on a sort of nine sort of panel grid each time and it's and it's tight and confined and and, and yeah it, it all sort of feeds back into that yeah your next project after that the Megatherium club almost deliberately seems to move away from the city it's about adventures that take place in in some very different places do you want to tell us what the the premise is and and how it works the Megatherium club is based on a, a, an actual historical club that was in the 1800s and was based in the Smithsonian Institute and it was this uh, group of amateur scientists who sort of made up for their lack of experience with uh, enthusiasm which they brought to all things and as well as sort of uh, scientific endeavours they got up to various debauched activities as well and it was uh, something I came across and thought it was sort of a, a ripe sort of cast of characters to to sort of work with and I enjoyed historical points of interest and the sort of madness of early science so it was quite a uh, sort of natural natural fit but it was essentially a direct sort of um not a backlash to billboards but um it it, it was a, a counter counter to that because billboards for anyone who's read it will um realize it's you know it's quite heavy going um and it's well maybe that's a bit harsh but it, it's it's not a light uh a light piece um and it's got a few things going on in it whereas the megatherium club is just a sort of antidote to that it's it's sort of madcap sort of anarchic comedy adventure and it was almost more for me than anyone else just to sort of uh to sort of draw in a looser style as well the page layouts are sort of uh more sketchier and uh, and looser and could sort of play about with how i sort of told the story because uh, i don't regret doing billboards but it in retrospect taking on a six-part series as my sort of first foray into into comics is um is is quite naive um it's, it i mean one of the things i didn't expect was how quickly a style develops in the early stages and i was sort of locked into this style that i'd just come up with essentially and i was stuck with that for six six issues um and it was nice to have a break to just try other stuff and I was submitting stuff to anthologies as well, so that was all, all good. But the Megatherium was almost the, the, the most sort of different in a way, in terms of really sort of letting go. And as I say, the stories take the form a lot of the time of expeditions that the club's undertaking, which again moves you out into the field with them and out of the city. So again, was that deliberate in terms of giving you more spaces to play with, perhaps tapping into those tinting adventures that you enjoyed as a kid? I think there's definitely some of that in it. Yeah, I love a good ad- adventure. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it's great to find sort of vehicles to make those sort of stories work and, and, and get them to experience lots more different settings and environments, really, yeah. And the scope of the Megatherium Club can mean they're in the jungle, they're at the pole, they're yeah. wandering through a field or a desert. Yeah, exactly. And as in the first volume, you can even uh, play about with reality and uh, and what's their imagination uh, as well because they're generally quite drunk most of the time you can sort of uh, 
infer things and uh, uh, that aren't even real at all. So it it almost is uh, limitless. <laughs> Going back to billboards, another contrast between that and the Megatherium Club is, of course, the fact that with billboards, it's self-published and indeed self-produced. You you made it essentially from scratch. You printed out the copies themselves what was the process like and what was the your decision making in terms of doing that again that was sort of down to naivety at first i didn't really think of any other way of putting it out i i certainly didn't think any, anyone would be interested in putting it out on my behalf so and i became aware that people did make their own stuff and and, and sell it and that seemed like something i could do and having sort of worked in architecture and and, and such it's quite a practical vocation so you, you know how to put something together and make something look like it'll it's a pr- proper thing or as best you can uh, at home and I was quite happy doing that I'm also liked being in control of everything so the fact that I was stapling it and it's going to sit right how much time did you take in terms of sourcing materials like paper because it's got a very definite feel to it in terms of the paper stock and the cover stock uh, too long really um and there's only like a few places i can get the stuff that i want to make it exactly so and then you and then you set a standard which you have to then maintain for as many of them as you produce and because i sort of produce them to order it almost feels uh, slightly never-ending in that you don't just do like you don't do a, a, a print run and then you you work through it and then there's none left. Uh, it's sort of sort of infinite in a way. Um, was there a lot of trial and error in terms of like you said about stapling and making sure it sits right? Did you try various combinations to to make that the case? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, always just sort of experimenting with things and there's little sort of uh, models and. Sort of my cats of different <laughs> different versions and uh, and and stuff before I finally settled on it. But obviously, there's, um, other things come into it, like you know the cost of producing it and if it's worth doing. I mean, I didn't do it as a financial endeavour, but if it's costing you more to put it out than than you're, you're getting back, then obviously it's purely a promotion tool at that point, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Whereas you can make it sustainable and yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, people get into small press for all number of reasons, and um, didn't really have any particular goals with it at that point it was just I wonder if people are like this and how can I get it into someone's hands and that seemed I don't remember making any sort of conscious decisions it just seemed like a natural thing to do I still like the the, the sort of power that you get with self-publishing as well I like the idea you can as a process you can put in sort of raw materials like paper and card add your drawings and then have a, a product at the end and that can all happen very quickly and without any sort of committee. But with the Megatherium Club, you did move into working with other people in terms of producing the books. And that was great in a, in, in a, in a different way. There's testing elements of self-publishing and it, it's, it's nice to leave some of those behind if someone's willing to, to put your work out. So... Yeah, that was that was great. Avery Hill Publishing were interested in doing that. I'd done a couple of bits for them in their anthologies at that point, so I kind of road tested a short of the Megatherium Club in a couple of different versions for them, so they sort of knew what they were getting. And it's interesting as well looking at billboards and the Megatherium Club, the different functions they have as pieces. Like 
billboards is a longer form piece that has a finite ending. Whereas with the Megatherium Club, it seems designed to work in anthologies. It's a sort of project where it's open-ended, it's, as you said earlier, almost infinite in its scope, given the, the format and the, the characters involved. But can still lend itself to, to longer work. How deliberate was that to develop an idea that could drop into various projects that exist already? That was very deliberate. And going back to my previous way of working, where it's space-based, this was the opposite. It was a, a, a set of characters. and I had no sort of greater story to tell. It was just amusing capers that they could that they could get up to. So, yeah, the flexibility of it was was one of the sort of key key bits of it really you can make it into short one page stories just almost like a almost like a like a three box sort of gag comic or you can take it out into a, like a larger larger form it's just like an amusing set of characters and you can transplant them anywhere since coming into comics have you become more aware that you've basically inverted the pattern of how people do comics in that most people start doing short pieces for anthologies and build up to a longer piece, whereas you've opened with a longer piece and then sort of gone back to sort of go, oh, I can do short pieces in anthologies. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite aware of that, although I've not had it laid out so starkly before me <laughs> before. Yeah, no, com- completely. It, one of the positives about coming into it without any sort of context meant that I didn't sort of question myself at all. It was just, uh, I just created it and it, that's the way I'm going to do it. Whereas everything that I go into now, each time I start a new project, I have so many more sort of checks that I put myself because I'm, I'm more aware of things that are going on around or different ways you could do it. And every time I make a decision, that there's part of me now saying, well, why are you doing it that way? And what about this way? And is that the best way you could represent it? Whereas the, the, the first things I did were just, well, that's the way I'm going to do it. it, it wasn't, there wasn't a sort of self-checking system which, um, as I say, seems to be getting worse all the time. So uh, it's a wonder I'll get anything done, ever. It's a remarkable way to go, though, because you've basically arrived and said, I can do this incredible long-form piece, but also these shorter pieces, whereas usually, as I say, with the proving ground of the shorter pieces and then building up to the piece. So although it probably was a lot of work, well, it was certainly a lot of work for you, it is going to help you, I think, in the long run in terms of, of having that body of work behind you that other people with equivalent amount of time in comics wouldn't necessarily have put together. Yeah, that has been a, a happy benefit of going about it that way. Like I say, it hasn't always been the, the easiest way to go about it, and maybe the other way makes more more sense. But I don't regret doing it uh, at all, and uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really, really sort of pleased with how it's come out I mean I have a bit of distance on it now and I can sort of I'm happy for it to exist as it is with the sort of faults that any sort of first piece would have I guess I was I was slightly surprised that anyone was interested in it at all and then I kind of with the sort of readership I then felt a responsibility to complete it as as well and I, I felt I had to to do the thing credit and it's been really flattering how many people got in, interested in it so you sort of created a rod for your own back which then gives you the momentum to finish the larger project and it's certainly something in in completing something as well uh, that the actual process of doing it there's the whole don't get it right get it written kind of philosophy which I kind of sort of subscribe to I think 
we've talked a lot about things that are distinct between billboards and the Mega Theorem Club, but one thing that ties them together as pieces is the fact that they're not in colour. How deliberate is that, or is that a thing where you don't feel confident using colour? It's kind of deliberate. Again, it was a sort of control thing, working in architecture and, and, and design and illustration. I always find it really frustrating how colour changes in different sort of mediums when you print it on different monitor screens and it was it was just another thing that was out of my control was you can't you can't get black and white wrong um however it is produced or printed it's going to look as you intended it to look so i think it was just wanting to be in control of it i can't remember what it was now but i remember producing something for an illustration and seeing it in a different format and thinking it was completely different and I didn't want that to be out of my control or people to be looking at my work and making assessments on it based on something that I wasn't in control of. I've since d- dabbled in colour, like part part colour, and I did a small full-colour strip uh, in an anthology relatively recently. And it's something I'll definitely do more of. The other thing, of course, with both those projects is they almost reward going the black-and-white route, the, the cityscapes of billboards feel they should be sort of grey and austere and then of course the the 19th century setting of the Megatherium Club has almost a, a sepia tone quality to it. Yeah, it was supposed to sort of emulate those sort of etchings of sort of early sort of science and, and, and the like. So talk us through a page. You've got a blank piece of paper in front of you. What is your actual method of creating the image? What's the, the stages that you go through? It varies depending on what I'm working on. In terms of, what well, should we go through billboards, for example? Yeah, yeah. Billboards, the final product is uh, A5 size. I would draw it on a sheet of A3 with two two facing pages on it. And I would draw it in just standard pencil first. Then I would ink over it and then rub out the, uh, rub out the pencil. I mean, there's little sort of variations in that, but that was essentially it. I mean, I think everyone thinks how they do it is wrong, from from what I've, I've found out. So I don't think there is actually a, a right way. But it, it feels. Do you think it, you're doing it wrong? It feels quite sort of uh, basic, and yeah, I, I would assume I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> that would be my starting point. Uh, but I, I quite enjoy some of the uh, the bits of it, the byproducts of using that method. For example, when I remove the pencil. With with the eraser, it takes off some of the ink, and you can knock bits back that you want to, and then go over other bits of the ink to bring out. And it sort of it almost sort of fuses the ink with the paper more, and you can sort of have sort of control over it, even to the point where it becomes quite deliberate at, at points. So, um, so you're erasing in a particular way to give an yeah. effect that then you can work on with another layer of ink. Yeah, exactly. It varies um, a little bit. I mean, the Megatherium Club, I use a photo blue pencil uh, as the as the as the back uh, background for that. But essentially, it's it's the same. It's uh, it's then just got worked over with 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 ink. And I do knock some of the some of the pencil out with a bit of eraser as well, and then sort of scan it in, and you can sort of clean it up a bit on Photoshop. And Billboards has tone in it as well. It has uh, a grey tone. And the later uh, issues of the Megatherium Club have have tone as well, and that's all done in in Photoshop. All the text is done in 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 Photoshop as well. In terms of the Megatherium Club, so are the sort of the speech bubbles. But in between the billboards, rather bizarrely, they're hand drawn 
and then the uh, computer text dropped him. Why did you change that for the Megatherium Club? Was that just realising that you, you could? or It was realising that I could, and also I move things around quite quite a lot, and to be stuck with a sort of a speech bubble that was there and there was nothing drawn behind it, it was that it was quite it was quite limiting and and sometimes things only become apparent they're not working or or something would work until you finally put it all together and you're like oh we don't need any speech in that and you can't just take it out because you've then got drawing a bit behind it i guess you could just draw in a bit behind it but um i'm very impatient and i don't like drawing anything twice in fact i don't think i've ever drawn anything twice if it's not quite right i just think get it right next time and hopefully there's no nothing too glaringly obvious in there that's wrong. And what sort of materials do you use? Is it a, a, a standard paper or a particular like type of paper you like? The paper varies again on, on depending on the on the project. Generally, it's like a, a kind of cartridge paper, so something with a bit of bit of texture. Just because I like the sort of feedback you get off the pen when you sort of move it over, and you, you sort of feel like you're more in control of it, and it and it absorbs the ink a little a little more. I quite like bringing some of the grain through when I sort of scan it in as well, which adds to it in in some cases. Yeah, it does vary. And if it's like a really clean image, I'll do it on some sort of sort of bright white sort of Bristol board or something like that. That way, you get the much more definition between the ink and the paper. And what sort of pencil do you go for? I use a rotaring mechanical pencil. Architectural background coming from architectural background. Yeah, no, it's the same one that I got in the sort of architectural student starter kit when I started uh, university so they do last it would seem Have you experimented with any other pencils or? Yeah I've tried different stuff I do like a mechanical pencil and um, I've I've tried some various ones and yeah they they have different merits and different cons as well but I think as an all rounder I'm I'm very happy with the rotary and in terms of pens um, I use the the Stadler pigment liner ones generally the sort of 0.1 or the 0.05 so very sort of fine fine ones and they suit me fine and uh, I have to always sort of feel guilty that I'm not doing something more sort of brush based and getting a nice sort of attenuated line and and, and things like that but I've had abortive attempts at trying to use brush pens and and such and I don't think it really suits I, I like to be in control too much I think um, even the sort of the more out of control lines that feature in like the Megatherium Club, for example, most of them are sort of engineered to, to seem to seem that way. So you've uh, built in spontaneity, absolutely. <laughs> and in terms of digital, as you say, you, you're adding in speech bubbles and um, grey tones. Do you clean up the lines a lot? Do you do a, do you adjust anything there in terms of the actual line work? If there's been any mistakes, then that gets done in in Photoshop. So that that, that it's like a sort of final sort of checking process for that. And yeah, we clean it up, make it sharper. Do you keep a sketchbook? I do, but it, it gets less and less use these days. Uh, well, I, I keep two sketchbooks. One is like a day to day sketchbook, which I keep on me all the time. And the idea is to, to draw when I'm out and about, which I used to do all the time when I worked in architecture, not for architecture, but as a sort of re- release from it, because I realised it wasn't the profession I wanted to be in. So I was constantly drawing and 
trying to get myself in shape to be an, an illustrator. So I drew a, a lot then when I was like commuting and on the train, and I used to publish my sketchbooks then of just sort of uh, various things that I'd seen out and about. Bizarrely, now I sort of work drawing pretty much every day. The urge to sort of draw when I'm <laughs> on the bus has sort of left me a little bit. Um, and then I have a second sketchbook which sort of sits on the desk, which is just sort of like like the ideas sketchbook. So it's like, oh, I wonder what that would look like. And then you just sort of have a little sort of doodle on and see how it, see how it turns out. And, you know, no one gets to look at that. It's just a kind of... Um, a testing ground, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff in that turns out to be quite good. You, know, you just scan that in because it's it's a decent quality paper and it works. So when you say ideas, it's while you're working and you just want to test out a particular image or it's a case of an idea occurs to you and you make a note of it? Sometimes it's a written note. Like, I, actually, there's a third sketchbook. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a notebook uh, which has just sort of written bits and I kind of collect them together like sort of jigsaw pieces, I suppose. And I'm like, that's a good idea. And it just sort of like exists on its own for a while. Putting billboards together, I went back through some of my old notebooks and like found the first mention of it and and, it sort of, and the name of it and, and like the, the first like initial sort of sketch of it. And then as you go through the sort of various notebooks, you can see bits that I've added to it, and then it's sort of like that's another bit for that project. And it, it, it was probably of, of years before it reached a point where it's like oh. And now there's the final bit, and, it, and that connects all those bits back, and then you, you've got a coherent thing. Billboards was a, a written piece at that point. It was going to be like a short novel, which I started to write as a, just like as text. And it was about the same time I was getting into illustration, and I th- thought it would be foolhardy not to make it a visual thing, and that's how I stumbled into comics. <laughs> so was the initial idea to write as a novel and have it with spot illustrations and that developed or I would, I mean, no originally it was to have no illustration at all it was just a short story and but was there a, a, a sort of hybrid moment between it being a novel into a comic where it was was it a transitional thing or was it suddenly i'm going to do this as a comic it was after i written about a page and a half of it and i was like laboriously explaining what it looked like and i was just like well, what are you doing that you you can draw this <laughs> and <laughs> you wouldn't have to say it's a uh, and, um, I was like this is a comic clearly it's a comic and since deciding to move into other forms of art as well as, as architecture have you taken any extra classes or tuition um, I, I used to attend life drawing uh, sort of weekly which is absolutely sort of vital I mean, anyone will will say as advice to just keep sort of drawing, and it doesn't really matter how and where you do it, as long as you sort of keep doing it. I never took any sort of tuition. I don't know how useful. Obviously, there was teaching of drawing in architecture, a very particular type, obviously. But even that was quite broad. At university, we were taught sort of various different techniques of sort of drawing, because it's not just about technical drawing and architecture. I mean, my sort of sort of day job is to do architectural drawings like perspectives and and you're trying to sell an idea or a feeling it, it's not it's not the technical side of it those are a different set of drawings so yeah you learn that whole sort of range of range of skills for doing that and you add to it what you need to so be that going to life drawing classes or just drawing on the street or wherever in terms of life drawing do you think it was it was useful to have 
firstly, time set aside to purely draw, but also to be given things to draw or people to draw or subjects to draw that wouldn't necessarily be available to you or occur to you normally. I completely agree. Um, And it's sort of the same as having an illustration contract or working to a brief. It, It forces you to to draw stuff that you wouldn't normally and that's what sort of stretches you and makes you do better stuff because otherwise you just sort of stick to the sort of safe things that you know you can draw and you end up drawing this and you think oh why am I drawing the same character every day it's like well because no one's telling you to do otherwise and you're only in control of yourself you're completely right it's great that it it actually dedicates time to to do it which is it's really hard to justify sometimes I'm quite aware that uh, a, a week the weaker part of my work is probably my sort of figure drawing, just because architectural drawing has been such a part of my sort of sort of life. It, it doesn't feel like too much effort, whereas people are my Achilles' heel. So uh, anyway, yeah, an opportunity to sort of get better at doing that is is always good. Do you have any current inspirations in terms of comic creators or comics that you particularly enjoy, or creators whose work you particularly enjoy? I still don't read a lot of comics, to be honest. I would say that my influences come from lots of other stuff outside of comics uh, as well. But, um, yeah, certainly a few that have really sort of opened my eyes, different ways you can do things. I think Asterius Pollock, which I only read relatively recently, an absolute phenomenal use of the medium. And it's things like that which sort of make think, well, after you've snapped your pens in half, um, you, you then <laughs> you then think that yeah, this is this, this is a brilliant brilliant medium. It, it's just it's just doing something which you couldn't do in any other form, and I think that's when it's at its best. Because yeah, comics are, are great in, in in all forms, but sometimes you think yeah, that could have been that could have been a TV show or that could have been a or a, a book or, or or whatever. But with with work like that, where it's so sort of intrinsically linked between the sort of the images and the text and the narrative. It, it just feels like a perfect moment, and uh, I find that quite inspiring. But I get inspiration of like certain elements of comic creation from quite unlikely places sometimes. And you sort of think, well, there's none of that in your work. And, and you're like, oh, no, but it's about the, the timing of that comic and the way it sort of paces it. And, and or tone it, or something like yeah, that. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. Even if it's not completely obvious that that would necessarily be an influence yeah thanks for joining us Owen you're welcome where can people see more of your work uh, well they can go to my website which is owenpomery.com pomery spelled p-o-m-e-r-y and that pretty much links to everything else that I, I, I might have been doing I'm on twitter at odpomery and if you're interested in the more sort of architectural side of what I do that's at analogvision.com Process is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other podcasts you might enjoy.